I'm not a big fan of thinking about death. It's not something that I enjoy contemplating. (laughs) It's not something I like to focus on. And yet it is a fact. It is a reality of life. Each of us will have a final chapter. Each of us will have a finish. And the question becomes, how will we finish? How will we finish? This morning, our text looks at three big names in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews picks out a few stories, a few examples of how faith was clear at their finish. As we explore these stories, may God encourage each of us in our walks of faith, and may we be prepared and encouraged for our finish. Hebrews chapter 11, picking up in verses 20 through 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Pray this in your name. Amen. The 2012 to 2016 Seattle Seahawks football teams were known for finishing strong in football games. They hold the longest streak for not being blown out, not losing by 10 or more points, which is considered two scores. The streak ended at 95, 95 games in a row without being blown out. That's absurd. It's crazy. The next closest is the 2008 to 2012 Green Bay Packers, who made it 69 games. In the locker room after the games, the coach, Pete Carroll, would often be caught on video yelling, can you win the game in the first quarter? To which the whole locker room would yell, no. Can you win the game in the second quarter? No. Can you win the game in the third quarter? No. Can you win the game in the fourth quarter? Yeah, and everyone's going crazy, and you know, the music's bumping, and the beat would drop, and everything would just go nuts. There was an incredible emphasis put on finishing for this football team. An incredible emphasis on not putting too much stock in how the game started or the bumps along the way, but instead of getting... But instead of getting caught up in the distractions and disappointments that occur over the course of a game, the focus was playing hard to the end. The focus was on training and preparing so that you were able to have a shot to win it at the end. So you could make sure that you were competitive. For no matter how strong you start, you don't win a game in the first quarter. For there are still three more quarters to play. You win the game in the fourth quarter. When the clock hits zero, those Seahawks teams were great finishers. How are you at finishing? 
How are you at finishing? I'm historically not a very good finisher. I'm the guy that gets excited about an idea, a a dream, a goal, and I, I love to push towards it. I'm good at bringing people alongside me, but but after the momentum is built up, after things are moving forward, after the initial push is over, I tend to be the one that is content to let my momentum carry me across the finish line. Like if I was in crew, those like guys that like row the boats, right? If if I was in crew, I'd work my tail off pulling at that oar, excited about the competition, adrenaline pumping in my veins, and then as the race goes on and I get more and more tired, My arms feel heavy, fatigue sets in. The adrenaline has pumped out of my veins and now I'm just tired, I'm just exhausted. My energy is spent and I know that the momentum of the boat will carry me across the finish line. I won't finish with the time that I could. I won't finish with the time that I wanted when I started. But hey, I'll finish and and I'm just too spent, too tired to keep going. This is true in many areas of my life. In, in high school, I had what we like to call senioritis about halfway through my junior year. I just didn't care about school anymore. I could have done a lot better in my classes than I did, but I just struggled with motivation. I just didn't want to be in school anymore. And so I struggled to finish well. You're typically not a great finisher. How are you at finishing? Sometimes we finish poorly because we don't know what will come next. We don't know what the next project will be. We don't know what is around the corner and we have grown comfortable with our current situation. So we don't, we don't want to finish. It's scary, it's overwhelming, it's new, it's, it's change. I'm not looking at retiring any time in the next 30 to 40 years, but I can imagine when that time comes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be nervous. Ready, probably, but, but nervous. When finish, with, with finishing comes change, it's, it's turning a page. Slowing up as we near the finish line isn't just about exhaustion and lack of motivation. It's also about being unsure of what the future brings once you've finished, once this chapter is done. It's being hesitant about the next adventure. Are we ready? Are we prepared? That is the question facing the three characters in our text this morning as we encounter them in the book of Hebrews. Each man is entering the final chapters of their lives. And as that final hour approaches, what impresses the author of Hebrews is that these patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, had a faith that looked beyond death. They were sure of what they hoped for and certain of what they did not see. They were convinced that death would not frustrate God's purposes, that his word would be fulfilled. Put another way, they didn't believe that death would put a stop to the promises of God. That even though it was the end of this chapter for them, it was not the end of God's promise. And that though they died, God would remain faithful to his promises to them and to their children. 
And that is outlined here in our text this morning. The first patriarch we meet is Isaac. Last week, he was a boy about to be slaughtered by his father. And this week, he is a frail old man blessing his sons before he dies. Our text tells us that by faith, Isaac spoke blessings for the future over Jacob and Esau. And those of us who know the story may get a bit like, what? What's going on here? Didn't Isaac speak the blessing over the wrong son? Didn't he put his blessings on the wrong sons? You see, Jacob, the younger son, was a trickster. And earlier it had been foretold that the younger of his sons would serve the older. But Isaac favored his older son Esau over his younger son Jacob. You see, Esau was more of a man's man. He was a hunter-gatherer, strongest dude in the gym kind of guy. And besides that, the Bible tells us that Isaac just really liked the food that Esau would kill and prepare for him. So Esau was the favorite son. Jacob was one of the things that Esau was, and he and his mother, Rebekah, were convinced that Esau would be given the better blessing. And so they came up with a scheme to fool, pretty much blind, Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing meant for Esau. It basically meant that that Jacob dressed like Esau, right? He, he put on animal first, that he would be hairy like Esau and try to talk with more of a baritone instead of his natural tenor, even though Isaac was doubtful. He went through with the blessing. And then shortly after Jacob left the tent, in came Esau, ready to receive his blessing. Isaac was taken aback, crushed. The Bible says that he trembled and that he was shaking. He was in so much distress. He had given Esau's blessing to Jacob and there was not much left for Esau. And we see later that the blessing that Jacob stole from Esau wasn't, it wasn't even the blessing that was foretold like Jacob and Rebekah had thought and expected for Esau is mad at Jacob and plans to kill him for stealing His blessing in this instance and earlier in Genesis, he steals his birthright. And so he plans to kill him. So Isaac and Rebekah send Jacob away to live with Rebekah's brother Laban. And right before he goes, we read in Genesis 28 that Isaac calls for Jacob and blesses him. So this is not the blessing that Jacob receives in the tent. The blessing that was meant for Esau. This is a separate blessing. That, that Jacob receives as he is leaving the family and going to work with Laban. This is what Isaac says. Blesses him, saying, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your, increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessings given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. This This is the Abrahamic blessing that was foretold that God ordained would be given to Jacob, not the blessing that Isaac had intended for Esau. So Esau gets a pretty raw deal here. And we may say, why not just say the same thing to Esau that he said to Jacob? Why not give him the same blessing? It's just words. It's just talking about your good intentions for your child. Why not just... Use the same words. 
But it wasn't just words to Isaac. Isaac knew, believed, had faith that God would work in the blessings that he gave his sons. He had faith that God would work in those blessings even after Isaac was gone. After Isaac could no longer protect them, no longer care for them or provide for them. That God would work through the blessings that were given them for he proclaimed them in faith. He proclaimed them in faith. The second patriarch the writer of Hebrews talks about is Jacob himself, the thief and the liar. In the story our text mentions, Jacob, old and almost blind, had Joseph bring his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Jacob's grandsons, to him. You see, two of Jacob's sons, Reuben and Simeon, had done some things that we're not going to get into this morning that had removed them as candidates for the particular blessing that Jacob was preparing to give. So in the place of Reuben and Simeon were Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. This is why there is no tribe of Reuben or Simeon, but Manasseh and Ephraim are included amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. So Joseph positions Manasseh next to Jacob's right hand, right? So he's got Manasseh, and then he places Ephraim by his left. But Jacob, responding to a nudge from the Lord, crosses his hands, giving Ephraim the blessing of the eldest son, Manasseh, the blessing of the younger son. Joseph wasn't happy about this. I would assume Manasseh wasn't really that thrilled either. But though Joseph tried to correct his father, he says, Dad, you got it wrong. You, you, you're crossing your hands. What are you doing? This is Manasseh. This is the one who should have your right hand. But Jacob wasn't concerned with how things are supposed to be done. He was responding to a nudging of God, and nothing, he was convinced, would thwart God's purposes. And indeed, in the course of time, the tribe of Ephraim became a leader in Israel. For by faith in God's word, Jacob was sure about the future, even though it was contrary to human convention. Sure about the future, even though it was contrary to human convention. This isn't how things were done. This isn't how it was supposed to happen. But that didn't matter to Jacob as he responded in faith to a nudging of the Lord. The final patriarch we meet in our text this morning is Joseph. And the story that is chosen to illustrate Joseph's faith is, I mean... It's a a bit of an interesting choice. There's so many stories of faith that could be used to articulate this particular patriarch's faith. His time as a slave, running from, from Potiphar's wife, his time in prison interpreting dreams, becoming the vizier of Egypt, the second in power and the strongest political power of the day. And how the Lord used him to save everyone in Egypt and in the surrounding countries, including his family and his people. Joseph's story is full of awesome and fantastic moments and examples of faith. So why is the direction about his bones 
the article of faith that the writer of Hebrews focuses on. This may be an element of the story, of Joseph's story, that, that we aren't as familiar with. You see, Joseph had left Canaan at the age of 17, sold into slavery by his brothers, and he lived in Egypt until his death at the age of 110. But in fulfillment of his father's directives, Joseph's mummy was carried out of Egypt by Moses, which we read in Exodus 13, verse 9, and later was buried in Sechem by Joshua when he conquered the land. Joseph didn't know about the slavery his people were about to endure. He didn't necessarily know about the Exodus, but what he did know is that the Lord had promised his people a land. And he knew that Egypt was not that land. And so he left instructions with what to do with his body when the time came for the promise to be fulfilled. Joseph didn't want to get caught up in the power and glory of the here and now. Joseph, being the vizier in Egypt, would have been buried in like a a huge, fancy tomb. He was part of the upper class, and so he was mummified. His his body had a prestigious resting place, but but Joseph wasn't caught up in the prestige. Instead, he was focused on the promise. The Abrahamic promise that one day his people would have a land of their own, and he wanted his body to rest with his people. He wanted his body to rest in the fulfilled promise. He knew it wouldn't happen in his time. He knew he wouldn't see it. But he had such faith that it would come to pass. That the promise would be realized that as he approached death, he asked that he be taken out of his fancy tomb and put to rest in the land of his people, the land of promise. As big and as important as all that Joseph achieved was, it paled in Joseph's eye to the future promises of God. Even though each of these guys struggled at times with trusting the Lord in their lives, in the end, they finished well. They put God's way of doing things first. And if that didn't mesh with what everyone else Or even if that didn't mesh with what everyone else thought they should have done. These men finished well. As they reached the last chapter in their lives, they finished in faith. Which chapter in life are you in? The reality is that none of us know which chapter of life we are in. We have some hints, you know, we have, a, we have a pretty good idea. Some of us are older, some of us are younger. And if we follow the general trend, the general trajectory, we have a pretty good idea about what chapter we're in. But the reality is that none of us, none of us really know. We know this is true by looking at the world around us, by seeing how final chapters have come much too soon for so many which begs the questions, are you living now as if you'll be finishing later? Are you living now as if you'll be finishing later? Are you living right now as if you have more time to finish strong? Now is the time to live your life, to do what you want. You can finish strong later when it's, when it's more convenient, when you don't have 
Anything else really to focus on? One of the biggest issues with the 2012 to 2016 Seattle Seahawks teams is that they didn't play in the first half the way that they played in the second half or the fourth quarter in particular. The play calling and the urgency clearly picked up at the end of games and the beginning of games were consistent and constant frustration for the fans and source of ridicule for commentators. The team often totally looked inept and outclassed, not even close to living up to its potential in the first half of games before turning it on in the second half so that they could finish strong. Those Seahawks teams had the advantage of knowing that they would get four full quarters before the game ended. We are given no such guarantee. If this is your last chapter, how would you rate your finish? If this is your last chapter, how would you rate your finish? How is your walk with the Lord? How is your faith? Have you been putting your walk with Christ in neutral, prepping to rev it up as you near the end so that you can have the kind of fun you want to live in life right now? Have you been discouraged in your battle against sin and your sinful nature and feel like any hope of a strong finish is past you now and you're praying your momentum will carry you over the finish line? Are you just tired and worn out and weary? How are you doing? If this is your last chapter, how would you rate your finish? Some may ask, did I do enough? Did I do what I needed to? Did I reach my quota? Will God be pleased with me? As we contemplate our final chapters and look back on the book that tells the story of our lives, the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone, I am so incredibly thankful for Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. For I am weak, he is strong. Where I have failed, he has succeeded. Though I am a poor finisher, Christ is the perfect Finisher. Jesus Christ hung on that cross, and as he hung there, he carried every embarrassing sentence of my book and every embarrassing sentence of your book. Every time we messed up, every time we failed to resist temptation, every time we hurt someone else, every time we hurt ourselves. Every time we did something that was deserving of God's wrath, every time we did something that would cause us to fall short of perfection, Jesus carried it. He bore the brunt of God's displeasure, for he was forsaken by God, cast out. And there on the cross, an innocent man, the perfect God, died in our place and for our sin. And right before he died, he proclaimed, it is finished. It is finished. The price has been paid. And it has been paid in full. No more do our flaws and failures count against us. They have been put on Christ. And to punctuate his ability to finish, 
Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the ground. He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, for he is God, and sin and death have no power over him. And so as you contemplate your finish, know that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, it is he who finishes for you. It is he who finishes for you. We could never do enough. We could never be enough. We have continuously failed to meet God's standard of perfection. But through faith, we are covered in Christ, and He did it all. He is enough, and He meets the standard of perfection. As we near the end of the message this morning, let us be encouraged by one more hero of faith not mentioned in Hebrews 11. For this is not an Old Testament hero but an apostle and missionary of the new. In his final days while in prison, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, he writes, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is near. He sees the final hour. He knows his time is coming. And then he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul finishes well. He knows his time is near, and as he looks back on the marathon of his life, he doesn't rest on his laurels, he doesn't rest on his accomplishments, he doesn't rest on how many churches He's planted or how healthy they are. He doesn't rest on how popular he is or how influential he is. He doesn't rest on how much or how little is left in his bank account. Paul rests in his faith. I have finished the race, he writes. I have kept the faith. He rests in his faith. Let us also rest in our faith. A faith that calls us to good works that please and bring glory to our God. A faith that calls us to the marathon that is life in Christ. A faith that calls us to run well, to push hard. A faith that strengthens us for the journey ahead. A faith that calls us to repentance. A faith that promises we can be assured of forgiveness. A faith that gives us a burden for mission. An urgency to tell others about Jesus. A faith like that of Isaac, Joseph, and Jacob that is confident that God will keep his promises to his people. Let us rest in a faith that finishes. What a wonderful, amazing, loving, and gracious God we serve. Amen.